This is They Create Worlds, Episode 70, Sega vs. Nintendo, Round 3. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Welcome to the next level, part three of Sega vs. Nintendo. We have enjoyed the horrors of Nintendo and Sega coming to power in Japan. Nintendo beat out Sega. Nintendo and Sega went to the United States, and then Nintendo beat out Sega again. Now it is time for a little bit of revenge, as Sega gets to have one over on Nintendo for at least a little bit. Yes, particularly in the United States, and for longer than a little bit in Europe, which is a region that we will turn our attention to for the first time in this episode as well. Of course, in Japan, the story is same old, same old. We can dispense with that very quickly. We hinted at that at the end of the last episode, but once there's a winner (laughs) in Japan, It is hard to dislodge that winner, and just because there was this shiny new 16-bit system, literally quite shiny because it said 16-bit in gold, actual gold, I do believe, on the uh, console, that's in Japan only, that new shiny wasn't enough to overcome the already prevalent Nintendo bias. So Japan continues to go the way of Nintendo as it always would up until the coming of Sony. Therefore, we turn our attention to the front lines of the console war, which occurred in the United States of America. So as those that uh, listened to the last episode will recall, Sega made the decision in the middle of the Master System's life cycle to discontinue selling it through Sega of America and to instead go through Tonka, a toy company that was trying to position itself as more than just a maker of metal trucks. I think they'd gone to plastic by that point, but the point still remains. That relationship was discontinued both because clearly Tonka had not done that great a job of selling, but it it wasn't that as a primary cause so much as it was that Tonka was really getting squeezed on the margins of this thing, and after they made a ridiculously overpriced bid for Kenner Parker toys, they were left in a lot of debt and they couldn't really afford to continue in a narrow margin business like that. A lot of sources call it a Sega decision to just break out of that because they were unhappy, but it was really a mutual decision and Tonka was ready to be out of that situation just as much as Sega was. For the Genesis, or for the Mega Drive, as it's still called at this point, because that's the name in Japan, they wanted to go the same route, because there is really no Sega of America at this point. It's gone. There's a warehouse. There are people maintaining inventory in that warehouse. There might be some customer service stuff, I'm not sure, but for all intents and purposes, there is no Sega of America at this point. So they're going to an outside company again, and they approach several toy companies. They're turned down by all of them. Nobody really wants to get into this business. Nobody wants to challenge Nintendo. They go to Atari. This is Atari Corporation, the Jack Trammell company. 
They go to Atari Corporation and they get a little more headway there because Atari is actually getting more and more involved back in the console industry again there. If not at this point, shortly thereafter, starting their own research and development on their next generation system, 16-bit system called the Panther that they are starting up. Tremel is somewhat interested. There are negotiations, but at the end of the day, Tremel wants too much. We don't know all the details. Some sources say he wanted worldwide rights to the system and Sega was only willing to grant them for North America. Other sources say other things, but the point is, for whatever reason, they cannot come to an agreement on anything. And so the idea of Atari releasing the system gets dropped. According to one source, though, it was during this period of time when it looked like Atari might be involved that the system itself got its American name. For the longest time, there was a story that was out there uh, that was perpetuated even by people inside Sega, like Al Nilsson who was at Sega, but not quite at this time. There was this pervasive story that it was renamed because there was a hard drive manufacturer or something similar named Mega Drive Systems. Therefore, there was a copyright difficulty. They couldn't call it the Mega Drive or trademark difficulty. There's not a lot of evidence that that's true. Nobody's really been able to locate this Mega Drive company. And Dave Rosen, who we may recall was still serving as chairman of Sega of America, who is kind of overseeing things on a big picture level, but not in any way involved in the company day to day. He said he just didn't like the name Mega Drive. It just didn't appeal to him. And he's the one that's primarily, especially in this period, taking charge of overseeing the North American marketplace. Kind of what he says on something like that goes. They needed a new name. According to Rosen, the new name was picked from a list of names by a panel, including him and a couple of other people. Where that list of names came from, we don't have detail on, but one Atari employee, D. Scott Williamson, claims that there was a brainstorming session held at Atari when it still looked like Atari might actually do the console. During that brainstorming session, his co-worker Steve Rhino suggested the name Genesis. There's no one else that's been able to corroborate that story. I haven't talked to Steve Rhino. It would be worth talking to him because this doesn't even come from Steve Rhino's mouth. It comes from a coworker's mouth. I have talked to the head of the Atari Electronic Division at this time, Larry Siegel. He had no memory of anything like that happening, which is not disproving it. It's just he couldn't provide corroboration. If Rosen really did pick it, it doesn't preclude Rhino coming up with the name. It could be that they had brainstorming sessions with all their potential partners with Sega America people, with Atari people in case they were doing it, whatnot, and that's how they generated this list. Rosen just says he picked the name. He doesn't say that he originated the name. So whether it came from Rhino or came from another source, it ended up on a list, and Rosen and his panel picked Genesis as the name of this new system. It's not a bad name, uh, you know, rebirth of Sega, really. A new beginning for Sega, Genesis. That's why we have the Sega Genesis in the United States, but only in the United States. Uh, well, in North America, generally. The rest of the world remains the Mega Drive, which is the name that it was given in Japan. Main selling point of this console is its uh, super fast 68,000 16-bit processor, as we discussed at the end of the last episode. The main advantage that Sega sees for itself is, of course, that Nintendo will not be coming to market with a 16-bit system for a while longer. Now, part of the reason for that, in the United States specifically, we talked about we don't know exactly why it was delayed in Japan, but the United States specifically, NES was not over. 
1989 and 1990 were great years for the 8-bit business. Nintendo was still making a lot of money. So they didn't see the need to make the jump right away to go to a 16-bit system, which is understandable to a degree. In hindsight, if they had known what a fierce competitor Sega was going to end up being, maybe they would have gone a different route. But certainly you can't blame them for thinking that this company that only has 4% of the market probably doesn't stand much of a chance. So there you have that. Uh, Nintendo's just cruising along with their same strategy, with their same system. Sega's going to come in and try to disrupt that. Once all of these deals, these attempts to license to another company like Atari fall through, Dave Rosen and Hayao Nakayama do decide that they're just going to go ahead and have to do this through Sega of America. They kind of, I think, had a feeling that they might have to do that. Because one of the first people they hired when they started staffing back up again was a marketing guy named Al Nilsson. Nilsson, I've interviewed him, he gave me the impression that when he was hired, he was told that this could go either way. Either we're going to bring this all in-house and you're going to have a lot to do, or we're not going to end up bringing this in-house and whoopsie, sorry about that. Nilsson was brought on with the expectation that they were going to need a savvy marketer in the very near future, but at the time they weren't entirely sure yet that that's the way they were going. But it is a good thing they brought him on because they do end up needing him. So they bring on Al Nilsson. They bring on a salesman named David Rhodes, who apparently, and this just is hinted at in various sources, apparently wasn't the most organized or necessarily the best person for the role. But they bring in David Rhodes to head up sales. They bring in Al Nilsson as a director of marketing, specifically for the Genesis platform. Then they're going to need a president now that they're ramping up again. The person that David Rosen, specifically David Rosen, not Hayao Nakayama, he's not involved. That's kind of important. The person that David Rosen chooses to head this up is an executive named Michael Katz. We've talked about Katz in other episodes because he had a long career in the industry. To summarize very briefly, he was at Mattel. He was a marketer in charge of new product categories in the mid-1970s when he played a role in starting the handheld electronic games business at Mattel that proved to be very successful. He moved on from there to Coleco, where he was involved in marketing communications during the time that they were doing the ColecoVision. Then he left to take over the company Epix, the computer game company. Turned it around. It was in bad shape, and he played a major role in turning it around. It collapsed again after he left, but that wasn't his fault. Then he ended up working for Jack Tremell at Atari, at Atari Corporation. He was in charge of what they called the Electronic Entertainment Division. It turns out that all they did in the Electronic Entertainment Division was market the old console systems, the 2600, the 5200, till they ran out of stock. They didn't start remaking it. They just had some left over. And the uh, 7800, later also the XE game system. He had wanted to do more than that. He had wanted to expand it into varying forms of electronic entertainment, and he was kind of assured that he would be allowed to do that when he was hired on. But the Tremels went back on that. They were really only interested at that time in the video game industry insofar as they could use it to fund their computer business. There's definitely a paradigm shift that happens at Atari at some point, I think because Jack Trammell steps down from the day-to-day role as CEO and Sam Trammell takes over, and maybe Sam was a bit more gung-ho about the console industry, they get more in tune with that market 
But in the time Katz is there, it's really seen as a way to fund what's going on with the ST computer. It's always hard working for the Tremels. It's especially challenging when you have a product that uh, it's difficult to get any content for. So he gets burned out on that and he leaves and decides to take a few months off to travel and has no intention of returning to the video game industry. He's going to do something else with his life next. David Rosen, of course, knew him from Atari and knew him from previous negotiations. And now that he was available, Rosen wanted to bring him in in order to do this Genesis thing. So after a little courtship and some convincing, Rosen is able to hire Katz into Sega of America to serve as the president of the organization. Katz and his team have a real challenge, as we discussed. They don't have the product that Nintendo has because the third parties are in the ironclad grip of Nintendo. It's all Japanese companies. The Japanese companies are not going to break from Nintendo. Namco tries at one point, long story, but in reality, they're not going to break away from Nintendo. The first thing that he really identifies that Sega needs is they need to up their product development. There is a large product development team in Japan. There are some very good people on that team, but there's going to need to be some Western development for Western gamers. This has to happen. And so Michael Katz makes a couple of very important moves. The guy gets short shrift. Everyone wants to consider Katz to be the footnote on the way to Kalinsky. Like Katz tried to do this thing. Katz putzed around with a couple of things. Katz didn't sell as many units as Sega wanted. Katz goes away. Kalinsky is here. The great white hope, the savior, the man who's going to deliver it all for Sega. As with any legend or any overblown hype, there is a little bit of truth to that. The fact of the matter is that Katz is not able to sell as many systems as Sega had wanted him to. But much of the groundwork for what really makes Sega successful is laid with him, because no matter what kind of marketing flash you have, no matter what kind of price reductions and bundling strategies and all the stuff that Kalinske did that we'll get to, if you don't have product, you don't have a viable video game system. This is true throughout the history of the medium. You need games. I need to have something in order to push that console. It has to be entertaining enough that I want to buy your console, let alone more than one game. Michael Katz understood this. And so he got permission to beef up Western game development. There really was no Western game development at Sega before the Genesis. What Katz did is he brought in a veteran guy named Ken Balthazer. Now, funnily enough, Ken Balthazer had never really done much video game development. But he'd been around video game development for a very long time. He was at Atari in the early 1980s. He had been part of a project in the late 1970s called CyberVision that was kind of an attempt to build a multimedia computer before the technology was really there to build a multimedia computer. It's a fascinating project. It didn't end up going anywhere. He was working on that project. He had no technology background. He was actually a radio announcer. 
has great voice. I interviewed him. He still today has this deep, sonorous voice. You can see why he would have been in radio. Oh, yeah. And he was brought onto this project because they were doing this multimedia stuff. So they wanted some story-based content, some audio content, and he was a guy that could provide that. So that was his entree into the tech industry. But then several of the people at CyberVision after that failed ended up going to Atari, into the home computer division. So he ended up becoming a manager in the home computer division in software development, but in tools, not in games. So he did that for a few years. Then uh, after that all fell apart, he went to Epics. We talked about this aspect in our Infogram episode. At Epics, he was in charge of helping to source software from Europe that Epics could market in the States. Mike Katz, as I said, was at Epics, but they didn't actually intercept. Intersect. Katz was at Epics before Balthazer was hired into Epics. So ships passing in the night. They kind of knew each other's names, but they had not actually worked together. So Balthazer was involved with interfacing with developers in Western Europe and even parts of Eastern Europe like Hungary that were making software that then Epics could market in the United States. I think it's because of that familiarity with a wide range of developers, of outside developers, that Katz focused in on someone like Balthazer as someone who would be perfect to lead up product development at Sega of America. Rosen did not agree. Balthazer was older. I don't know how old he was then. I'd have to look. But I mean, probably in his 40s, I guess, would be my guess. I mean, he was older than your typical development guy at that time. He didn't have the technical expertise himself. He wasn't so much a developer himself. I think he'd picked up some, but he wasn't really that. And so Rosen was like, no, this is not the right choice. Balthazer ended up having to write. He wrote a letter where he basically just laid out, this is who I am, this is what I can bring, and this is my vision for what Sega of America product development can be. It worked. It got him the job. So Ken Balthazer's brought in to head up product development, and we really cannot overstate how important his work was to helping get Sega established, even though this first year was not a year where they were doing as well. It was still him going out and finding developers like Infogram that we talked about in particularly Europe, but also some in the United States that had the expertise to make some of these early products that allowed Sega to start making on-roads in the market. The product development side tends to get buried by the marketing side. Everyone wants to talk about the marketing because it's sexy. Sega didn't have third-party support at the beginning. So if they had not had a wide range of developers providing them even if they weren't, any of them weren't huge hits, providing them the kind of catalog titles that you need to have a viable platform, Genesis would not have been successful, and, and Balthazer was a big part of that. The other thing that they did fairly early on, I think this was still in Katz's tenure, though it might have been at the beginning of Kalinsky's tenure, is that in order to beef up North American product development even more, rather than just having outside contractors that are interfacing with someone like Balthazer, they wanted to form an American studio with top Japanese talent from Sega mingling with raw, untested talent from the United States that could be turned into elite game developers and release good games 
for a Western sensible audience. They created a, an organization called the Sega Technical Institute, or STI, to do that. STI was based in a different building from Sega of America's office. They were kept isolated from the politics of Sega of America. It was meant to be a place where Eastern and Western talent could mix and come up with great new games for the Western market. A gentleman named Mark Cherney was put in charge of that. He was a prodigy who joined Atari as a teenager, created Marble Madness, did some other stuff, ended up then going to Japan and working for Sega in Japan, learned Japanese and everything. He worked on games for the Master System there. He also created, he's good at both hardware and software. He's a true genius. He's still in the industry. He was the lead designer of the PlayStation 4. Really? Yeah. Wow. He created a 3D glasses peripheral for Sega uh, for the Master System as well. So he was involved in hardware and software. So they relocated him to the United States and had him start this new organization. So we're getting product development going. That's big. And that's something I don't think Katz gets enough credit for in most sources. He also knows that they are going to need licenses. It's the same thing he ran into when he was at Atari. Nintendo has brands with built-in recognition because they have a lot of arcade hits on their system. It's not licensing in the sense we think of personalities, celebrities, whatever, but arcade titles, people know them, people anticipate them. We talked about what a big hit Double Dragon was on the Nintendo Entertainment System in one of our previous episodes. Part of the reason it was a big hit is because it had a built-in audience and a built-in brand recognition before it ever hit that console. You need to be able to generate that same kind of excitement that a license brings if you're going to be able to get people excited about your product from a marketing perspective. He can't get the arcade hits. At Atari, what he would do is he would license computer games. He would go to companies like Broderbund and Electronic Arts and Epics and license their titles to try to get built-in recognition for the 7800, but that approach didn't work all that well. I mean, nothing worked all that great for the 7800. It turns out that those computer games didn't really become big hits on the 7800, so he didn't go with that approach again. Instead, he went the celebrity approach. Though actually, it started before he was there. The first big celebrity they signed was Michael Jackson. Really? Michael Jackson? Moonwalking and all? Well, he was a huge video game fan. I mean, I'm sure you know how Michael Jackson, I mean, he had his ranch called Neverland and he had a very childlike persona mm-hmm. to him. Having the body of an adult, but the heart of a teenager. Exactly. So, I mean, he was a huge video game fan. He particularly liked Sega games, you know, because they make some of the best arcade games. I assume, I mean, I don't know, because this relationship predates all of them, predates Cats, it predates Al Nilsson. So I don't know exactly, but I wouldn't be surprised if he contacted Sega rather than the other way around, wanting to be involved. Turned out that Al Nilsson ended up being the one that shepherded the relationship, but it predated even Al Nilsson being there. So Michael Jackson was the first big celebrity they got. They did an arcade and Genesis version of Moonwalker that was a big hit. But then he went out and signed sports personalities. Cats did. Pat Riley for basketball, Tommy Lasorda for baseball, and the biggest catch of all, Joe Montana which they had to put out a significant chunk of change for, Joe Montana for their football game. Which is why we have the whole thing of Sega being associated as the sport console. This is part of it. 
the other part of it we'll get to in a bit, but that is definitely part of it. They really went big on the sports because that's something that the Americans could generally do better than the Japanese because they understand some of these games better. I mean, baseball's big in Japan, so you can probably count on a Japanese team to do baseball, but football, basketball, <laughs> these kind of games are not. Hockey. Yeah, hockey. Not so big in Japan. Licensing is something that the Japanese just don't do. Licensing personalities. It's not done. As a competing example, at NEC, Nippon Electronics, when they were bringing the PC Engine over to the United States as the TurboGrafx-16, they had a tennis game. And the American staff at NEC, the NEC America staff that were going to be responsible for launching the TurboGrafx-16, there was a pretty good tennis game on the PC Engine. And they wanted a license attached to it. I think it might have been John McEnroe, but if not him, some other great tennis player of the time. They really wanted to attach a license to that game. And NEC corporate back in Japan wouldn't do it because it's just not something that's done in Japan. They don't see the value in that. Nakayama was not necessarily happy that Katz was doing it either. Katz was spending a lot of money tying up these celebrities, sports figures primarily. Indications are that Nakayama wasn't entirely happy about that. Rosen supported him, but there was this kind of there was almost a kind of rivalry between Rosen and Nakayama, apparently, where they were almost vying for supremacy. <laughs> Rosen was the original founder of the company. It's more complicated than that because mergers, acquisitions, split-offs, Panamanian shell corporations. But for our purposes, we're going to call Rosen the founder of the company, even though he's not. If you want the full details, go back and listen to the Sega episode. Exactly. But from the time that Sega Enterprises became Sega Enterprises in 1965, Rosen was the head guy. He's the guy that guided it for decades until he finally stepped aside. But he's still there. He's still overseeing America, and he's still kind of the specter over the company. Nakayama was brought in by Rosen. We talked about that in our first episode of this set with Esco Trading. Nakayama was brought in by Rosen to run the Japanese operation. And then as the company shifted in this and that, it turned out that Nakayama became in charge of the entire company. They were friends. Rosen and Nakayama were friends, probably still are, they're both still alive. There was this sense, I guess, of competition between them, because you have kind of the original guy and you have the new guy and, you know. So the fact that Katz was a Rosen hire, specifically a Rosen hire, I think automatically put him off on the wrong foot through no fault of his own with Nakayama. Rosen, I believe, wanted to keep Katz on. I have not talked to Rosen. I've only talked to Katz, so I'm getting it from Katz's perspective. But he described to me how Rosen was very apologetic about how things turned out when Katz ended up being removed. I don't think it was so much of a we needed someone to come in who could do a better job as it was a turf war, almost, between David Rosen in the United States and Hayao. Nakayama back in Japan. Nakayama was not happy at all this money being spent on celebrities. That much seems pretty clear from the available sources. He was also not enamored with Katz's marketing strategy. Katz had a history of being involved in competitive advertising campaigns. He came out of the food business, the foodstuffs, not restaurants, but like cereal, <laughs> that kind of stuff, grocery products. In his very early advertising days, 
that's the kind of products he was doing, and competitive advertising is very common in that area. When he was at Coleco, Coleco did a competitive advertising campaign where they compared their handheld football game to Mattel's handheld football game to show which one was better. He didn't come up with that campaign. The campaign had been shot before he arrived at Coleco, but he was in charge of marketing at Coleco when the campaign actually aired. He had experience with that, and he wanted to take on Nintendo head-on because they have a superior product. It makes sense if you have a superior product to go after the other guy and point out why your product is superior. So he decided to do a competitive advertising campaign which, again, in Japan was just not done. Rosen went to bat for him. It was Rosen that had to convince Nakayama and the Japanese management to go through with this campaign. Again, it's always Rosen that's kind of sticking up for Katz, because Katz is Rosen's guy, but he's not Nakayama's guy, and I think that that just created a situation of... Internal strife. Yeah, that's not my guy. But they end up doing the famous uh, Genesis Does What Nintendo Don't campaign. We all love that one. Yep, and of course we'll put that in the show notes. To highlight the differences between the consoles. To highlight that 16-bit, greater power, better graphics, etc. that Genesis had over the Nintendo Entertainment System. It's a solid plan. Katz has a solid plan to move this forward. He's got advertising that's going to you know, make some noise. He's expanding product development in a way that'll ensure that they have more games to the Western taste. Not just arcade-style games, but also sports games and this and that. He has these licenses. These top-notch, in some cases, I mean, Tommy Lasorda, people know who he is, but is that really top-notch? But Joe Montana, that's top-notch. He's got these licenses that are really going to raise brand awareness. That is a solid starting place to take the market forward. But Nakayama puts somewhat unreasonable expectations on him, probably because he's looking for an excuse. I mean, I don't know that. That's speculation. But I think Nakayama, being the control type that he is, my guess is he probably resented a little bit that Rosen had more control over what was going on in America, and he was looking to shift that, to shift the fulcrum of power back to him and away from Rosen. This is complete speculation. I just want to make that very clear. But we do know that there was a Rosen-Nakayama kind of rivalry. We do know that Katz was a Rosen guy, and we do know that Rosen was, or at least Katz says, I mean, it's his perspective, but we do know that Rosen you know, was kind of unhappy with the way things turned out with Katz, with Katz being dismissed. So I wouldn't be surprised if his dismissal was as much as anything to do with Nakayama wanting to have a more direct line on what's going on at Sega. More internal politics than anything. Could be. But he was given the mantra, you know, to sell a million units in the first year on the market, released in the U.S. in 1989, Japan 88, North America 89. He sells about half a million in the first year, which for a company that it had like a 4% market share and not a lot of brand recognition and everything else was actually a pretty good showing. It's not the best showing ever by a new console. You can see Nakayama's point that with hot new technology and everything else, maybe you can get at least a million people to buy in. You can see that side too. It wasn't that terrible a showing, but it wasn't what Nakayama was looking for. So Nakayama decided to make a change, and this is Nakayama. Rosen has nothing to do with this. 
That's Nakayama's right, because even though Rosen is serving as chairman of Sega of America, Nakayama's still the head of the parent company, and he's co-chairman of Sega of America, so he's allowed to have a say. So this gives him the excuse he needs to step in and bring in his own guy. Of course, the guy he chooses to bring in is Tom Kalinske. Tom Kalinske came up with Mattel. He rose from a product manager, a marketing guy, worked on the Barbie line, worked his way up to head of the North American operations of Mattel, and then became co-CEO of Mattel with the international guy, John Ammerman. They were kind of in a power-sharing situation. So he had risen almost to the top of Mattel in the early 80s, during the period of time when they're doing in television and all of this. But then when it comes time to replace Art Spear at the top, Art Spear being the CEO of the company, you know, the two candidates are basically Kalinske and Ammerman. The board decides to go with Ammerman rather than Kalinske because Ammerman has more experience. He's been around more. Kalinske kind of feels stabbed in the back. He leaves the company. He goes and turns around Matchbox, car maker. They're having some trouble. So he goes and tries to turn them around. And Nakayama comes and recruits him out of Matchbox with some courting, with some techniques, convinces Kalinske to come work for Sega. He joins in late 1990 as the CEO. Katz and he overlap briefly, but once Kalinske is the CEO and over top of him, there's really no place for Katz anymore. So Katz leaves pretty soon after. There's a lot of talk about how Kalinske turned around Sega's fortunes. It's true insofar as it goes. But what we really want to focus on here is some of the consequences of those actions. He turned it around in the short term, but at what price? And that's what doesn't really get reported. That's what we want to look at here. So it's more along the lines of what sacrifices to the underlying structure and core thing for sustainability that Sega needs were sacrificed in order to have it do a much more rapid rise and attainment of power. And then once that initial rise attainment to power didn't have the structure it needed in order to sustain that. Exactly. Kalinske saw a few areas where there could be improvement. And he was right insofar as it goes with some of this. He really thought that the price needed to come down. To $150 from like 180 or 190, wherever it was, in order to put it within reach of the average consumer and to no longer be kind of a luxury item. He felt that the bundled game with the system, Altered Beast, uh, beat him up. It was an arcade hit, just very straightforward, moving left to right, beating things up. When you beat enough things up, you turn into an animal, rise from your grave, and all that. We'll put it in the show notes. It was a bit of a plotting game. Again, it's Sega knows how to do the arcade game. Something that is an exciting visual feast, audio feast, beat em up in the arcade, like Altered Beast was, doesn't necessarily translate into the greatest game to be the lead game on your console system when people want a little more depth. Plus, he was quite rightly, I think, concerned about how that plays in the Midwest and other conservative regions of the country, transforming into beasts violence, all of this stuff. So he wanted to replace the bundled game with something that he felt would work better, both to showcase the console and work better to his demographic. 
And he wanted, of course, to continue the competitive advertising. He thought that was a good idea, but that wasn't something he started. That was something started before him. So, you know, there's the famous story. He goes to Japan. He speaks to Nakayama and the board. He lays out everything he wants to do. It's translated, of course. The entire assembly disagrees with him. Nobody agrees with his plan, but Nakayama, who had handpicked him and who knows a thing or two about being dictatorial, says, you know, but we hired you for America, so do it. We don't agree, but do it. So he does. He cuts the price, and he changes the pack-in game, and of course the new pack-in game is the just hot off the presses, just come into existence, Sonic the Hedgehog. And we really like our Sonic. (laughs) Creation of Sonic is really a story for another time. In this episode, we're focusing more on marketing and distribution and all of that than games. We can cover the entire Sonic franchise and some other Oh yeah, it can be its own episode easily. But suffice it to say that Sonic was created to be a Mario killer. I mean, that was the sole reason it existed. It took advantage of the speed of that 68,000 processor. It was a game of pure speed, and that gave it a leg up over the Super Nintendo that by this point is coming out in 1991 in the United States as well, because the Super Nintendo has more colors, a game like Super Mario World has more depth, it's prettier, but it's a slow game compared to Sonic. So they package Sonic, which becomes a hit, and that helps. The price cut helps because they've undercut the Super Nintendo which is coming out at 199 So that helps. They have the cheaper system on the market. They have the hot game. They target an older demographic, which is also smart. They decide, okay, fine, Nintendo has the lock on the 6 to 12-year-old audience. We won't try very hard to capture that audience. We'll go for the teenage audience. They capture a new segment of the market. So they, they're looking for something edgier. You know, Michael Katz started the competitive advertising. But if there's one thing that Tom Kalinske and his team really did that was important is they didn't just go competitive, they went edgy. They were trying to get in tune with the zeitgeist of the teenager of the time. You know, this is the early 90s. This is the girl power movement in punk. This is grunge music where Kurt Cobain is screaming into the microphone. This is... A period of time when edgy means flannel clothing and nobody understands me and raw ice cream at the world and MTV quick cuts, that kind of thing. You know, this is this is what edgy, whatever that is, means in the early 1990s. And if any of them saw today's edgy, they'd have a commission. (laughs) Right. So they're trying to position it as something a little more dangerous, a little more on the edge, which Sonic also helps with, clearly, because Sonic has attitude. He taps his foot if you're not moving. He's got playing. Push A. Push A. Gotta go fast. They take all of these steps and they work. They've got the head start. Nintendo comes on very strong in 1991. But. Sega has the head start, and they have Sonic, and that helps them in the 16-bit market be very competitive and and be neck and neck. But of course, Nintendo is more than just the 16-bit market. They've still got the 8-bit market. They've still got the handheld. They've got Game Boy. Sega's going to release a handheld as well, Game Gear, in this exact time period. But 
Game Gear never captures anywhere near the market share that Game Boy did, of course. So Nintendo, even though things are neck and neck when it comes to 16-bit market share, they're making more money. And remember, Sega is really not making much on the hardware. They may even be taking a loss on the hardware at this point because they've cut the price to the bone. Nintendo is actually forced to follow suit. Nintendo never cut the price of the NES during the height of the NES. But they cut the Super NES from 199 to 179 almost immediately, like four months after launch. Still more expensive than Genesis, but not quite as big a gap. You know, Nintendo's always been savvy with hardware. Nintendo, people talk about the Razor and Razor Blades business when it comes to selling console games. You sell the hardware at cost or even at a slight loss because, you know, people are going to buy the cartridges and then you mark up the cartridges greatly compared to their production cost. And that's where your money comes from. Well, Nintendo's never really been in the Razor and Razor Blades business. They've always wanted to make a bit of profit off of their console if they can. They were forced to cut the price of the Super Nintendo when they wanted to, but they were still deriving more revenue when they sold those systems because they cost more and they were making money on them, whereas Kalinske cutting it to 150 yeah, that got people to buy it, but that really destroyed their margins. That really made it harder for them to turn a profit on their sales. So you're much more reliant on the actual games in order to turn a profit in order to make the money. Yeah, I get my console into your home, but if I'm only having the consumer buy two or three games versus Nintendo being able to sell five to ten games, then yeah. Exactly. If you look at 1992, 1992 is the first year that the Super Nintendo and the Genesis are on the market for the full year together in the United States because Super NES comes out in late 1991. There was probably a slight edge in sales to Genesis because in the figures that I see, Nintendo very specifically did not say how many Super Nintendo systems they sold, which generally means that they're trying to hide the fact that they didn't sell as much as the other guy. Sega revealed that they sold 4.5 million systems in 1992. Nintendo just kind of stayed quiet, so it was probably a little bit less than that. But Nintendo sold 2.7 million Nintendo Entertainment Systems. Master System is dead. I think they're still technically supporting it through the end of 92, but it's dead. So they're not selling anything in Master System. So Nintendo can add 2.7 million NES systems. Not a lot, but they can add that on top of what they're selling in 16-bit. And they can also reskin it into that NES version 2 over there. And they're selling their system at a higher margin. So Nintendo probably was either slightly behind or dead even on 16-bit console market share in 1992. But they were responsible for 80%, 80% of the revenue in 1992. They brought in $4.28 billion. They sold $4.28 billion worth of product in the United States out of a total of $5.3 billion in total product sold. So they have severe dominance there. Exactly. That's important. That's what gets lost 
in this part of Sega's rise. Sega wins Christmas four years straight. 91, 92, 93, 94. Just in terms of like sales of their console versus the NES. Or Super NES, I mean. The pure volume. But Nintendo is rolling in money. Nintendo is taking in a huge amount of revenue. Sega is not always taking in that same amount of revenue. They've cut the price, which is a Kalinske decision. They've cut the price to a point where it's getting kind of dangerous. And they're now caught in a price war. They're going to end up cutting the price again to like 129 in 93 or so, I think. Nintendo eventually cuts the Super NES down to 150. They've put their best game in with the system, Sonic the Hedgehog, which is not a dumb thing to do at all. It's good to have a good game in your system, but they don't have a lot of great supporting games to support it. Most of the best games are still coming out from third parties for Nintendo. The big game of 1992 is Street Fighter 2. Sells 6 million units worldwide. Huge. Only available on the Super Nintendo. Because Japanese company Capcom. Capcom's close to Nintendo. They're not going to break with Nintendo and release that on the Genesis. So it's great that they've got Sonic, but Nintendo's got Street Fighter 2 and all the other great third-party content that's coming out. So there's still a disadvantage there. Now, of course, Sega has one ally, and this is very important. And this is really not something that either Katz or Kalinske can take credit for, except in the sense that Kalinske finally got out of Trip Hawkins' way. Sega does have Electronic Arts. Without Electronic Arts, I think the Sega story ends much differently. I mean, it's great that they had Sonic, and it's great that Kalinske positioned Sonic in such a way that it would get into a lot of homes and create a lot of buzz. Kalinske deserves massive credit for that. Kalinske played his role. But Electronic Arts is really what gives them their break. And we've talked about this in our EA episodes, because we did an episode on EA during this time period, so we don't necessarily have to talk about it a lot again here. But just as a reminder, Trip Hawkins absolutely did not want to be involved in the console industry. His board finally said, no, you're getting involved in the console industry. You are leaving so much money on the table that it would be irresponsible of you to not enter the console industry. So he begrudgingly gets a Nintendo license, but he really chafes at their control. He doesn't like the idea of their control. He also doesn't like the idea that working on an 8-bit system is a step backwards, technologically speaking. So the Genesis comes along, and here's an opportunity to get in on the ground floor with a platform that is more in tune with his own sensibilities. But you see, Sega has restrictions too. People seem to forget that the control that Nintendo exerted in the 80s, Sega wanted to exert most of that same control in the 90s. They didn't have the exclusivity thing, but Nintendo got rid of the exclusivity thing at the beginning of the 90s. But they did have content standards, Sega did. They weren't as strict. You know, obviously, you could have some blood and you could have some gore and all of that. But they still had content standards that they enforced. And they still had slots. At least at the start, they may have changed this, but they were only going to allow companies to release four games a year on the system. They had slots just like Nintendo did. Nintendo restricted companies to five releases a year. We didn't talk about that last episode, but we've talked about that before. Sega was going to restrict to four. 
Sega was going to do all the cartridge manufacturing itself. They weren't going to allow other companies to manufacture cartridges. They were going to do the same thing that Nintendo did, where if a company wanted to release a game on their system, they would have to buy the cartridges from Sega at whatever markup Sega decides to put on. It'll probably be more of a markup than if you went to an independent supplier of the cartridges. They're going to allocate you how many they're going to make. So, you know, you lose all of this control. So they still had the control issues. Trip Hawkins tried to get them to back off of their control. They weren't going to do it. Trip Hawkins has a team, as we discussed, do a clean room reverse engineering of the Genesis. Hawkins gives an ultimatum. Give us a better license. Give us a better deal or we're just going to go it alone. You'll sue us. We'll go to court. Will we win? Who knows? Probably. Maybe not. But do we really want to do this when you can just give us a reasonable license and we'll work with you? I make a better ally than an enemy. Exactly. And of course, part of the reason that they finally acquiesced to this is because Sega has a disaster on their hands with their big sports game starring Joe Montana. Michael Katz went off and spent a lot of money on Joe Montana. And now they don't have a game and they need a game quickly, really quickly, so quickly that they cannot go to another company to start over from scratch. Originally, they thought that they would have a company called Blue Sky Productions do the game. But that company was like, we ain't touching this. We don't have time to do something from scratch. They needed something that was already there, already partially complete. EA already had their Madden engine. They were already creating John Madden football for the Genesis. So they had an engine. We just need to reskin it. Yes. And be sure not to make it too good. Of course. Don't want it to look better than Madden. Play better than Madden, whatever. So the details on that, go listen to EA Sports. Exactly. We don't have to get into it here because we have talked about it before, but it's that EA deal that's so crucial because it gave them a third party. For the first time, they had a third party in their corner, a third party that was releasing great sports games, but also releasing some other games that were really good, too, like Desert Strike, for instance. Now, most of these were multi-platform games, obviously, but there was a very Genesis-first mentality to what EA was doing. So even though a lot of this stuff also eventually appeared on the Super Nintendo, because EA was not going single-platform, that still provided them the boost they needed. It was the first time that they had broken through and gotten a real third party on board with the Sega system. Joe Montana Football, John Madden Football, and EA coming on board is just as important as lowering the cost of the system and bundling Sonic with it. Because Sonic's still just one game. Having those semi-annuals or annual sports titles really provides the backbone you need in order to have sustainability as far as, okay, there's another cartridge I want to buy for this console, so I have more of an incentive to buy the console because there's a library that's worth it. Right. And it's also the work Ken Balthazer is doing to build up internal and external development. Sega Technical Institute. It's the guys in Europe, Real-Time Associates, Infogram, etc. It's getting in with Blue Sky Productions, which I briefly mentioned is the company they were hoping could do Joe Montana. But even though they don't do that, they do other sports games and other kinds of games for them later. It's creating this developer base. This is just as important as cutting the price. And in the long term, it's the more successful stuff because you're getting games out there. Cutting the console price, even though it, it was a good idea to generate sales, it got them involved in a price war in the long run, that was very harmful to the company. If he had to do over again, should he have done the same thing? I mean, the answer is probably. It's just, let's not make it sound like Kalinske came in and did all these brilliant things and lived happily ever after. It's like, no, Kalinske did what he needed to do in the moment. 
And I think he was right that he needed to do those things in the moment. But they sacrificed long-term viability for short-term profit share gain. And that's an important point to raise that often does not get raised about the Kalinske tenure at the company. So what's Nintendo doing? What's Nintendo doing while all of this is going on? Nintendo is doing what Nintendo always does. They are doing the exact same marketing approach. It's the same people there because, like I said, Nintendo is a family. People don't leave the family. I don't mean that in a sinister way. It's just that it's a nurturing and invigorating and a nice work environment to be in. But it's not the godfather. Right. We would be very disappointed if you were to leave the family. So it's the same people. It's Minoru Arakawa as president, Howard Lincoln, senior vice president, Peter Main in marketing, Bruce Donaldson in sales, Gail Tilden's over at Nintendo Power. It's the same people doing the work. They bring in some new people as well. And then those new people like Perrin Kaplan and George Harrison stay forever as well. I mean, that's just the way Nintendo is. So they're still doing the same type of marketing. They even don't even change their slogan much. Now you're playing with power. Now you're playing with superpower. You know, they're hyping new releases. They're sourcing the best games that they can get from Japan, both from their internal development, from Miyamoto and his people at EAD and from people like Capcom with Street Fighter 2. They're chugging along. They're cruising along. They're not doing anything unusual. But then again, this is the entire history of Nintendo. They always march to their own different drumbeat. And it's working for them because Sega liked to use market share numbers. And why not? If you have X percent of the market and they have X percent of the market, you're number one, they're number two. The revenue picture is what's different about Nintendo. Now, of course, Nintendo wants to be number one. Nintendo's competitive. They don't want Sega beating them. They're upset that they don't have 90% of the market anymore. I'm not saying that they're complacent or anything, but they're making money. It's a contrast of, yeah, Sega has more volume, but their profit level is lower. Right. So I may be selling, for sake of argument, a million units, but I'm only making $50 in every unit. Nintendo goes, okay, I'm selling 700,000 units, but I'm making $200 or $100 in every unit. Even though that volume's lower, they're still making more money overall. Right. And I don't know what the exact figures are, obviously. And my numbers are completely fictitious. Right, of course. But, you know, they're profitable. And they have Japan. Japan is an incredibly lucrative market. In some ways, during this time period, more lucrative than the United States. We talked about this before. The tie ratio tends to be higher in this time period in Japan. If you buy a video game console in Japan, you're probably going to, on average, buy more games for that console than your typical American is. That's the tie ratio, the the number of games. Right. And the tie ratio for the Super Nintendo is higher than it was for the Sega Genesis. In Japan. I'm just talking about Japan. Okay. Uh, Because they've got the Japanese market sewn up. So they're making money there. Sega's not really making that much in Japan because they're barely in the market there. And that's a lucrative market because of how many games the Japanese buy. Sega is a rising star at this period in the United States, but it's coming at some cost. Now, conversely, an area where Sega is having a pretty unqualified success in this time period is Europe. And so we'll turn our attention there for the first time. Hi, Europe. We know you're there. Europe was a non-factor in the console market in the 1980s. 
Did some people buy consoles? Sure. They were expensive. Importing costs were high and everything. Before 1990, there basically wasn't much of a market there. It was only at the beginning of the 1990s that people started really buying consoles in Europe in large numbers. There may be isolated country examples that are different from that. Obviously, Europe is actually a bunch of different markets that are very different from each other. We tend to lump them all together, which is not always helpful. But on the whole, the entertainment was more of a computer-based entertainment. ZX Spectrum, C64, Commodore Amiga, Atari ST, etc. Nintendo started focusing on Europe more at the beginning of the 1990s because they were afraid that they were going to lose their antitrust suit with Atari in the United States and that their revenue in the United States was going to go down. So they started ramping up European operations in the early 90s. But they relied on a lot of different distributors in different markets. Bandai distributed in several markets. Other companies distributed in other markets. So they had a really fragmented approach to Europe. And they had not really gone out of their way to create much of a brand recognition throughout Europe. Sega was in a more advantageous position, but they got there kind of by accident. Because when they first launched the Master System, in Europe in the late 1980s, they had different distributors everywhere. They had Mastertronic, Mastertronic in the United Kingdom. They had Master Games in France. They had a different one in Germany. And Areola Soft, I guess, was the one that did it in Germany. They had different distributors everywhere. But they had a really bad go of it. What happened is that all of these companies were out there generating orders and generating hype and whatever, and then Sega didn't get them the inventory that they had promised. They weren't able to get enough inventory into Europe. Once they didn't have the consoles to sell, demand kind of collapsed, and the companies that were involved in this collapsed. Master Games in France got into horrible trouble. Areola Soft was a big company. They weren't just dependent on this business, but they vowed never to work with Sega again. Mastertronic was hurt, but they came out of it at least in half-decent shape and did okay in Britain. And so Mastertronic was put in a situation where they could potentially take over the entire Western European market on behalf of Sega. That's exactly what they ended up doing. Now, they didn't have the capital to do this themselves. Mastertronic had been started in the early 1980s as a budget software label. At a time when the average computer game was like five or six pounds, they were going to sell games for two pounds. They were really the first budget label, which became a very important part of the British computer game market. As they grew in power and influence, they expanded out of that and did some full budget software as well. And then they got into this console distribution business. Even though they were kind of big player in this budget scene, they didn't really have the capital to fully take over Sega's business all over Europe. So they partnered with Virgin, with the Virgin Group, Richard Branson's conglomerate, which had a small game subsidiary, Virgin Games. And basically, the two organizations joined forces to create a new company called Virgin Mastertronic that would be able to acquire all of these territories and provide inventory to all of these territories. Frank Herman at Mastertronic, one of the co-founders, and Nick Alexander, who was running Virgin Games, became kind of the big guys at the top of this new organization, Virgin Mastertronic. So Sega had a unified Western European strategy 
at a time when Nintendo had a fragmented European strategy. There we go, getting into logistics again. If you can get that distribution going well, you're going to dominate the market, even though it's not the quote-unquote appealing part of marketing. Right. They had a uniform brand message. They started building the brand. To be this good takes ages. To be this good takes Sega or whatever the, the line was. They used ages as Sega backwards. To be this good takes ages. They created this you know campaign kind of around the Sega brand name. So people in Europe kind of knew who Sega was. So as the console market began to grow in Europe and particularly in the United Kingdom, Virgin Mastertronic was poised to capture that market better than Nintendo was, which had always neglected Europe in favor of the United States and Japan. The other kind of surprising thing that happened, I don't know if it was surprising to them at the time, but it's surprising to some people like us looking back, is part of Sega's appeal is that they had the Master System that was a more advanced console than the NES, but was cheaper than the Mega Drive. It's the Mega Drive there, just like in Japan, or the Super NES. The Master System actually did great business in Western Europe in the early 1990s. It did better business than even the Mega Drive did. They did like six million of them across Europe. Master Systems. Well, I think it makes sense because you have Europe with no consoles really to speak of because, as we said before, the market is smaller. But here we go with better distribution, better marketing, a good campaign slogan, all that stuff. And people go, oh, I need a console. Let's see. I can get a really fancy, expensive one from Nintendo or that Sega people I heard about. Oh, the expensive Sega people sell a lower price 8-bit system. That's interesting. I don't already have that. And then that can get me into it. And so I can play some games and stuff. Oh, look, there's a good library already. Fantastic. Exactly. They created certain games that were on the 16-bit systems for the 8-bit system entirely for this reason. Golden Axe, obviously a much better game on a 16-bit system, but they made it for the Master System. Sonic the Hedgehog. There is a Sega Master System version of Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm going to have to look all of these up, aren't I? (laughs) Sure. You were getting some of the same hit titles that you had on the Mega Drive, on the Genesis. You were also getting them on the Master System. So in the cost-conscious European markets, we've talked about that before, that uh, cost is, you know, the standard of, of living or the cost of living, standard of living is not quite the same as United States. Cost plays a factor. It's why they had tape drives when we had disk drives. The Master System actually becomes a real asset in this market. And it does really well in this market. Genesis sells too. The Genesis outsells the Super NES, for instance, in Britain. Uh, In Britain, Sega takes as much as uh, like two-thirds of the market. They really make money in Europe in a way that Nintendo's not. It's the one big market that they're king in. They're also king in Brazil, where they partner with a local toy company called Tech Toy that does a good job of localizing content and making it appealing to that local audience. And again, Nintendo just goes through intermediaries that aren't as as careful about that kind of thing. So they're winning in Brazil, too, though Brazil is not an important market. The Master System still sells in Brazil. It is still in production in Brazil. To this day. That's amazing. They've sold over 5 million of them. Now, a lot of that is in more recent years. By 1996, Tech Toy had sold 2 million of all Sega consoles in Brazil. 
So during the period of time that we're talking about the console war, they only sold, you know, a million or so master systems. But as time's gone on and it's continued to be in production. Uh, maybe they are able to get the chips in order to make it. For all I know, the ones they sell now are emulated. I don't know. Oh, that's possible. Yeah. But, you know, that product still has power in Brazil. But Brazil's not as big a market, so that's not as crucial as winning in Europe or the United States or someplace like that. It's an interesting footnote that Sega is also doing very well in Brazil in this time period. The Mega Drive classic. Yes. Sega's got Europe, which is helpful. They're kind of edging a little bit in the United States, but more in market share than they are in revenue. And they're dying in Japan. It's easy to look at the Sega story in this period as the story of the plucky underdog taking on the big guy and coming out on top. But there's actually a lot of warning signs in there. Just because you're getting in the first punch doesn't mean that you're actually going to get the KO. Right. I may land a good lucky punch here, but it leaves me open for a sucker punch there. Right. And then I have to roll into the vat vat of acid there. Now, the real turning point is definitely 1993. And 1993 is quite rightly considered the year of Sega. Sega does their Welcome to the Next Level campaign with Goodby, Silverstein, and Partners. The quick cuts, the jump cuts, the edginess, the Sega scream at the end of it, that really gets attention. They're building a brand. Nintendo has never been about building a brand. They build support for games. But like we said, the Nintendo brand is not something that they're so interested in. Sega, knowing that they're at a disadvantage on games, because even when they have a couple of good things like Song of the Hedgehog or whatnot, they're still at a disadvantage on games. They concentrate on building a brand. They concentrate on building coolness. And that's another reason why they're marketing to teenagers. Because teenagers want what's cool, and younger kids want what the teenagers want. So if you can convince the teenagers that you're cool and get them to buy your system, that's going to trickle down, and that 6- to 12-year-old demographic that Nintendo has a stranglehold on is going to start looking more favorably at your product as well. So it's a smart approach. They need to do a brand-driven approach because they don't have the software. And it works really effectively. Welcome to the Next Level is a really effective ad campaign. They deserve all the kudos in the world for building that brand like that. 1993 is also the year of Mortal Kombat. We discussed that in our Acclaim episode. Acclaim has the home rights to Mortal Kombat. They are going to release that simultaneously worldwide, the first ever multi-platform simultaneous worldwide release. It looks better and plays better on the Super NES because the Super NES has more colors. And when you're talking about digitized graphics like Mortal Kombat has, gradation of color is very important. Sega Genesis has fatalities and blood. Right. The thing that Nintendo doesn't have is it doesn't have the fatalities and it doesn't have the blood because, according to their content standards, that stuff is no good. We've talked about this before. Nintendo is fair across the board. Nintendo really believes in what Nintendo is doing, and Nintendo upholds its standards. It would be easy for a company to say, this game, and, you know, Acclaim was telling them. It's like, you know that this stuff's going to be in the Genesis version, and you know that the kids are going to love that, and you know that this means that they're going to outsell you. Nintendo's like, that's our policy. They don't want to alienate mom. They want to keep that 6 to 12-year-old market that they have locked up. And you don't do that ripping people's spines out of their body. Or setting them on fire. I mean, you know, they didn't make an exception for a claim. I mean, say what you will, but at least they're consistent, right? Yep. So, of course, Mortal Kombat is huge. 
and the Sega version outsells the Nintendo version two to one. And because Mortal Kombat is the hot game of the year, this means that people are gravitating more and more towards Genesis. So for 1993, estimates, everything's always estimates. The NPD group, the prime tracking group, estimates that Sega Enterprises takes a 57% share of the console sales in 1993, compared to 43% for Nintendo. When you take into account software as well, uh, it comes a little closer. But the point is, this is the year that Sega trumps Nintendo. And they do it a couple of ways. They do it by being edgy. They do it with the marketing spend. And then they do it with Mortal Kombat. I mean, Mortal Kombat's a big part of it. Nintendo doesn't have anything to offer that's as big as that. I mean, Mortal Kombat's on their system, but there's sweat instead of blood. Ooh, sweating. (laughs) And no fatalities. (laughs) I punch you, and you just have some liquid fall off of you. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Nintendo's sales by dollar volume are estimated at about $3 billion compared to Sega's $2.5 billion. So even though they have that dominating massive volume sales, that doesn't tell the full story because they have cut everything so close to the bone that they don't make enough profit that they can't take advantage of that volume properly. Nintendo, even though their volume is much less, they're making enough of a profit that they make more money than Sega does. And remember, the 8-bit market is almost dead at this point, 1993. But they still have that. Whatever little bit that adds to the pie, they have it and Sega doesn't. And they've got the handheld market. Game Gear is fine. I mean, Game Gear does okay. It sells like 11 million units over its lifetime. I mean, that's great. It's not a failure. I have one. Yes. But Nintendo's handheld sales are always going to trump Sega's handheld sales. So they're always getting more money from that part of the business. I have three of those. (laughs) There you go. In a total revenue picture, Nintendo is still looking really good. Now, they're getting beat up. There's no doubt about that. And we talked about in one of our episodes that this is the point where Hiroshi Yamuchi gets mad. He gets mad at his son-in-law, and he's basically like, you have let these guys treat us like we're a toy. You have let these guys beat us in market share. This is unacceptable. I am promoting Howard Lincoln to chairman of the company, and you two need to fix this right now. So Nintendo does change. They do an edgy ad campaign in 1994. Play it loud. You can throw that in the show notes, too. It's not a good fit for Nintendo. Nintendo shouldn't have tried to become Sega. Sega was Sega. Sega was doing its own thing. Nintendo needed to be true to itself. And yeah, they probably needed to switch things up and hit back a little harder. I'm not saying they should have just gone on doing the same old thing. But with Play It Loud, they tried too hard to be someone they were not. I think they would agree. I mean, I talked to George Harrison, who was a marketing guy during this time period. And he said to me, yeah, it it feels like it felt out of place for Nintendo to do something like that. But of course, Nintendo has its own ace up its sleeve, because one thing that has been quietly going on behind the scenes is Nintendo has decided that they need to follow Sega in Sega's footsteps and do some Western-oriented development. So there's a guy that works at Nintendo of America named Tony Harmon. Harmon is tasked with finding Western product that 
Nintendo can use or finding Western developers that can build product for Nintendo. Nintendo of America is not going to start up internal product development, but they are going to find developers that they can work with on a close basis to create content. Tony Harmon's travels take him to Britain. They work with a few different companies there, but the most important company that he connects with is a company that Nintendo had already been working with to a degree for some time, and that's Rare. Good old Rare. Rare had been one of the most prolific developers on the Nintendo Entertainment System. They were one of the first Western developers granted a license to develop for the console. We're not talking publishing, we're talking developing. They were one of the very first Western developers that were allowed to work on the console. They released tons and tons of games. They weren't a publisher. They made games for other people. Acclaim, Nintendo, etc. Released their games, but they created them. They vanished. Once the Super Nintendo came out, they vanished. Like, they weren't releasing any games. They released as many as like 16 in one year on the NES. Super Nintendo, they're gone. But they're not getting out of development. They're just experimenting. (laughs) They get themselves some Silicon Graphics workstation. And they figure out how to create polygonal 3D visuals in those workstations. And then render them two-dimensionally in the Super Nintendo hardware. That wouldn't look good at all. That would look (laughs) terrible. It would look so terrible in Donkey Kong. Oh, wait. (laughs) Visuals that you would not believe in a 16-bit console game. Frankly, I was floored as a kid when I played Donkey Kong Country. It was amazing how pretty that game looked compared to everything else at the time. Take F-Zero, one of the first games that came out. Yeah, we got the full Mode 7 thing going on, some pretty colors, a little muted, a little bit choppy at times, but okay. You take Donkey Kong Country, you have a game that takes full advantage of that sound chip on the Super Nintendo. You have something that looks visually impressive as you have subtle lighting effects that go on when you move from left to right and the day transition. Snow comes in, leave. You have dark areas where light wing in, wing out. You have to hit the button in order to turn the light on. All these different effects frankly blows some N64 games out of the water with how well it's presented. Absolutely. Donkey Kong Country becomes that secret weapon that they can deploy in holiday 1994. It sells 9 million copies. I mean, it's huge. It's the biggest non-bundled game to come out since Super Mario Bros. 3 uh, on any console. So Nintendo is starting to ride high again in 1994. Sega, on the other hand is running into trouble. And this is the part of the Kalinske story that doesn't get told. Sega of America is not profitable. They're winning market share. They're winning awareness, brand awareness. They're building a loyal following. They're doing a lot of things right, but they're not profitable. I've spoken to Hal Ivey, who was the president of the arcade subsidiary during the mid-90s of Sega. Hal Ivey described to me how a lot of the money that Sega Enterprises USA was making was used to prop up Sega of America. 
Hmm. They were a lot of their profits were going towards trying to bail out Sega of America. Sort of the whole Atari Time Warner thing. Yeah, sort of. Probably not quite as dramatic. They're spending a lot on advertising. They've cut prices to get people to buy their stuff. They've gone crazy on peripherals, which is not Sega of America's fault specifically, but it's a wider problem that's giving them more inventory hassles. Sega of America is barely breaking even in 1994. At the same time, a recession in Europe drives the entire European console market, Sega and Nintendo both, off a cliff. It's falling apart completely in Europe. By this time, I talked about Virgin Mastertronic. By this time, Sega has actually bought out the Sega console distribution stuff from Virgin Mastertronic and created Sega Europe. And Sega Europe is in the red. To make matters worse, the yen is strengthening. And a strong yen is always bad for a company like Sega or Nintendo that does a lot of their business overseas that exports because it means you lose money in currency exchange. As a result, by 1994, Sega is really starting to fall apart financially. A lot of that can be laid, not all of it, but a lot of it can be laid at the feet of the very Kalinske policies that rocketed them to stardom, are now dragging them down. Nintendo, meanwhile, has been going slow and steady. They've been making money at every step, and they are in a very comfortable situation financially. Now, their profits have gone down. The other thing that was stunning about 1993 is that their profits dropped for the first time in like a decade. Now, they still made a profit. $500 million, as a matter of fact. It was a big profit. But it was the first time they'd had a profit drop in a decade. Sega got in a good shot on them. But then Sega couldn't sustain it because Sega is not as financially sound a company overall on a whole as Nintendo is. So there's a lot of talk about how Sega Japan, particularly in in a book like, say, Blake Harris's Console Wars, there's a lot of talk about how Sega of Japan started interfering more with Sega of America, how Sega of Japan was resentful of America, that Sega of Japan was unhappy that Sega of America had so much success. And so now and they were sick of being bad mouthed. Why can't you be as successful as Sega of America? And that that created a situation where Tom Kalinske's authority was slowly eroded. That's the perspective, it seems, of Tom Kalinske and some of the Americans, a perspective that they're giving honestly. I don't think it's a perspective that they're being false. I mean, I think from their perspective, that's how they felt about it. But consider the other side of it. Big advertising campaigns, cut prices, winning market share, but consistently not bringing in as much revenue. Your return on investment is a lot lower. And if it takes me $500 to get a game to sell and I only make back $550 while Nintendo spends $300 and makes back $550. Right. And then there's also the wild card that Nakayama is starting to lose some of the power that he has. Sega grows very rapidly in the 1990s, in the mid-1990s, because of all the success that they're having in the United States. And I'm talking about Sega of Japan here is growing rapidly. Sega of Japan had been a relatively lean operation. It was the kind of operation that Nakayama could exert a lot of control over because it was small. But now it's getting huge. It is growing quickly, adding employees quickly. 
and there isn't a lot of middle management talent ready to go in Sega to support this explosive growth. So Sega starts aggressively headhunting from outside the company. They start bringing in outside people to serve in middle management. The most interesting of these individuals, hired in 1993, is a man called Shoichiro Irimajiri. We've talked about him before, I think, at least in passing. Irimajiri was a Honda executive, a very high-powered, very successful Honda executive. People thought that one day he would be the president, the CEO, the whatever, of Honda. And then he had a situation where his health went into a period of decline. And he had to step back from his day-to-day role at Honda. He had to resign for health reasons. And it was really for health reasons. You know, how whenever somebody is canned for doing a poor job, it's either to spend more time with their family or health reasons. Sort of really just doing it to save face. Right. But not in Iri Majiri's case. He really was ill. He really had to step down from what he was doing because he was ill. He remained on the board. He was in a strange situation. In Japan, it's the Japanese cultural thing. Once you step down, you can't really come back. Even if you're stepping down for health reasons, you can't really come back because you didn't tough it out. You were weak, and because you were weak in that moment, you can't come back. He did recover, but he couldn't go back to Honda. He was preparing to take a position with General Motors in their European headquarters. But then one of his friends who was in a securities firm that was also a securities firm who was also a friend with Nakayama because his securities firm followed Sega was like, no, 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 you can't go do that. A Japanese executive at a Western company, no matter how much they say they like you, no matter how much responsibility they claim they're going to give you, you're always going to be a second class citizen. No, you need to stay in Japan. You don't want to take this job with a foreign company. And because this guy was friends with Nakayama, he was like, Nakayama, take care of my man Yuri Majiri here. He needs to be looked after. He needs a position. They only met once. They met at a golf outing that this securities guy arranged. They were part of a foursome on, on golf. That's the only time Yuri Majiri and uh, Nakayama had ever met. You know, this securities guy pushed it and Nakayama was like, okay, fine. I don't know why an executive like that would want to come and work for Sega, but if he wants to, we'll give him a position. He sold him on the whole Sega thing. And surprisingly, Iri Majiri, he had already basically agreed in principle to go to General Motors, but he changed his mind and he backed out and he joined Sega as an executive vice president in charge of research and development. That's not the only guy that comes in. More people get to come in. They brought in some bankers as well. A Mr. Fujimoto from Dae, a Mr. Kinoshita from Sumitomo. They're bringing in financial guys, bean counter types, to be middle management in the company. The company's starting to lose money, and now you have a new layer of management that is more cost-conscious. This is a situation where there is going to be a lot of concern about what's going on, both in Europe, which is in the red, and in the United States, which is barely breaking even. If you're to read Console War, if you just read Console Wars, for instance, he's not the only one that takes this narrative tract, but just as an example, what you will see is a bright executive, and Kalinsky was a bright executive, so I'm not trying to take that away from him, but a bright executive who comes in with a clear plan, bucks Japanese management, proves that his plan works, has a huge success, beats Goliath, David beats Goliath, and then Japan 
yanks his chain and pulls him back down to earth, even though he's doing this great job. Well, Kalinsky is doing a great job and his team is doing a great job. They're talented people that are doing a good job, but the financial position is just not there. Sega as a company is not big and strong enough to sustain what Kalinsky's doing. And Kalinsky's going about things the right way, so I don't want to give the wrong impression there. Both Sony and Microsoft, when they got involved in the console industry, they had to spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to gain market share. And they had to write a portion of that off as just lost money. When you are trying to take on a competitor in an established industry and establish a market share in a place where you are not known, you have to spend money to do it. If Kalinske had it to do over again, he should do it the exact same way. Because otherwise, they were going to be nothing. They were going to be 10 or 20% market share again and inconsequential. So I'm not saying Kalinske did it wrong. I'm saying that Sega as a company was not strong enough, was not big enough, was not powerful enough to do what it needed to do to acquire market share and break into the market. And as a result of that, that's why Kalinsky had to be reined in. He was doing all the right things, but the company couldn't support that. The narrative of Japan was jealous, or the narrative that Japan didn't get it, or the narrative of why is Japan exerting more control and stopping this guy from doing what he knows needs to be done. That narrative starts to fall apart when you look at the underlying numbers. Nintendo killing them on revenue. Sega of America barely breaking even. Sega of America having to be bailed out by its arcade subsidiary because it's burning through so much money. Now it's starting to make sense. It's not a story of us versus them. It's not a jingoistic, oh, those Japanese don't know what they're doing. It's really just, we don't have the money in order to break into the market properly. And unfortunately, because we had to cut corners so much in order to cut so close to the bone, we are not making enough profit on the volume we are making in order to really sustain that growth. It's not like after they cut the price of a Genesis that they can go, all right, great. Now that we have. 50% market share, 60% market share. Let's up the price of that Genesis. No, it's not going to fly. If anywhere, you have to go down and then you're not making as much. So how do you make more money? You have to somehow come in with cheaper products, cheaper this, cheaper that. But we need to keep the quality stuff. And with electronics, you can't do that so much. Exactly. So the way Sega tried to get themselves out of this was really through that whole peripheral madness refreshing the Genesis with add-ons. And this is how we get that Tower of Sonic? Right. You know, Sega was in a difficult situation. I mean, the, the Sega CD, they had wanted to put a CD drive in the Mega Drive. It was just too expensive at the time. Everyone knew that the market was going to go CD. What all people didn't know was exactly when and how. I can understand why they would want to try to do a CD peripheral. The problem there was it's just the drive was so slow. And the passage of data from the drive to the machine was so slow that you were limited in the type of games you could make. You had to basically make really super duper linear games because you basically had to have that whole game loaded into memory before the game started. You couldn't have stuff changing on the fly because it would take forever to load. You can't blame them for trying the Sega CD. And I I don't think it really hurt them trying to do the Sega CD. And everyone thought they should. All the analysts said this is a great idea. So I don't blame them for doing the the Sega CD. The 32X is a little more complicated. 
Sega had a real problem figuring out where they were going to go in the next generation. And Nintendo did, too. Both of them did. Pull it back to Nintendo here. They were caught because it was clear that the market was shifting towards polygonal graphics. The arcades were starting to head in that direction. There'd been a limited number of things going on with that in personal computer games. And you even had experiments like Star Fox with the Super FX chip on current generation consoles. It was clear the market was going there, but it wasn't clear that it was going to go there fast enough to create a next generation console of a reasonable price. Both companies were approached by Silicon Graphics, which had created an advanced video game hardware. They actually went to Sega first. If you read Console Wars, it's just a, you know, it's a situation where Kalinsky was so excited and so jazzed about it. And then they went to Japan and then Japan nixed it over something to do with the size of the chip, as if what does the size of the chip have to do with anything? And yeah, it sounds really dumb in that circumstance, the way it's portrayed in, say, Console Wars. But that chip size thing actually comes up in Sato's oral history interview as well. It's actually in regards to Sony hardware, not the SGI hardware, but the same thing applies. When we're talking about the size of the chip, we're not talking about how big the chip is in the video game system. We're talking about how many chips you can get on a single wafer. When you create a computer chip, you're not just creating one computer chip. You've got this big wafer of silicon, and you're doing that whole wafer all at once, and then you're cutting that wafer into the individual chips. The bigger your chip, the fewer chips you have per wafer which A, means your yield in terms of total volume is lower, and B, since a brand new chip always has more manufacturing defects than an older chip does because the processes are so new, it means your failure rate on that wafer is higher. So the bigger your chip, the higher the cost of your chip. Sega is not in a great financial situation at this point. I don't think they're losing money yet overall. I'd have to check, but if they're not, they're close to it. They can't necessarily do what needs to be done to get a very expensive console to market at a reasonable price. They can't necessarily afford to do the big bulk orders. They can't necessarily afford to do all that they need to do. They don't have the war chest. I'm speculating here, but I think when they say the chip is too big, I think what they're really saying to Kalinsky, who remember is not a tech guy, is that we cannot produce this chip at a price where we can offer this system at a price where people will buy it. So Sega turns this hardware down. They're caught in the middle. They turn the hardware down. So Kalinsky puts Silicon Graphics in touch with Nintendo. He's not friends with Nintendo, but he's friends with the Silicon Graphics people, so he wants to do them a solid. And Nintendo ends up doing this system. Sega ends up taking the opposite approach. Nintendo decides, okay, 3D's coming. So we're going to go with this more powerful 64-bit hardware. We're going to leapfrog 32-bit. And it's probably going to take us a little longer to get to market. But by the time we get to market, this system will be capable of doing polygonal graphics. And no one else is going to be doing polygonal graphics really well by this point. By waiting another year, they end up waiting longer than that. But the original plan was to have it out in 1995. Sega and Sony come out in 94. By waiting another year... We leapfrog the competition by more than that. They decided to err on the side of waiting longer to get polygonal hardware. Sega decides, 
polygonal hardware is not going to make it in this generation at a reasonable cost. So we're just going to create the absolute best sprite-based system we possibly can. And that's what we're going to go with. And so that's what they do with Saturn. Now, obviously, Saturn could do polygons. Well, they're not polygons. They're quadrilaterals. But they could do 3D graphics. We'll get to that. But it really does seem that the plan initially was just let's make the best sprite-based machine we can. They're making this call in 1992. Remember, just because a console comes out in 1994, it has to be in development before that. Sega Saturn development starts in 1992. They don't have a crystal ball. They can't be certain what's going to happen. And what happens is that both Sega and Nintendo, both of them, are shocked by Sony. Because Sony had created a hardware, a graphic system, for making graphics for news reports, for newscasters on television, that could do polygons wonderfully well at a relatively reasonable price compared to other hardwares out there in the world. And you're using that for television? Ken Kutaragi, told you we'd come back to him, (laughs) discovered this hardware project and through sheer force of will practically, and we'll talk about his story another time, managed to convince Sony to create a video game hardware around it. The PlayStation was something that was not supposed to happen. And what I mean by that is the technology in the PlayStation was not something that was supposed to happen. It was not supposed to be possible to do 3D graphics like that in 1994 at that price. Nintendo decided, we'll go further out and we'll leapfrog to 64-bit and we'll do the 3D, even if it takes us a little longer to get to market. Sega decided, we can't wait that long. We need a new system now. We're going to do the best 2D system we possibly can. Sony came in right in the middle of those two approaches and disrupted the market as a result. Sega panicked because Sony has this console that can do at least some semblance of polygonal graphics of 3D. And the Sega Saturn just cannot do that. It is designed to be the ultimate sprite-based machine. The Sato interview that I talked about goes into some of this. There's actually somebody at the Sega 16 forums that have translated portions of it. So we actually have a good translation of this and not the hacky translation that we've talked about in other places. Basically, Sato looked at the PlayStation specs, looked at the Saturn specs, and decided that the clock speed of the SH2 processor being used in the Saturn would have to be increased so it could do 3D graphics on par or at least close to on par with the PlayStation. Well, Hitachi comes back, makers of the S2, and says, it can't be done. It's too late. You see, this chip is being developed at roughly the same time as the Saturn. They're they're saying it's too late. We've already finalized this. We cannot go back and raise the clock speed now. It would take too long. So they had put in to this SH2, literally almost as an afterthought, the ability to link two SH2 processors together. So Hitachi says, we can't raise the clock speed, but what we can do for you is put two of them, link them together, and have a two-processor system. So they add this extra chip because they are scared to death of the Sony PlayStation. And so they took this 2D console they had and made it so they could also do 3D graphics, and in the process gave it two CPUs 
not a dual core processor, but two distinct two CPUs that you had to balance load between mm-hmm. and two different graphics chips. It was a Frankenstein's monster disaster, but they gambled on the wrong side. They were like, sprites will be good enough for one more console. And they were wrong. Sprites will be good enough for the background of one more console. They were completely lost. Yeah, exactly. They, they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know when it was going to come out. They were like, should we go CD? Should we not go CD? Uh, they had dual versions running for a while in prototype, one with a cartridge, one with a CD, before they decided, okay, we can go CD-ROM technology. They're like, is it 2D? Is it 3D? They don't know when it's coming out. They need something to keep their momentum going in the United States while they figure this out. Because despite the problems, money problems, whatever, the, despite the fact that the money situation is looking, starting to look bad, they've got some good market share in the United States. They don't want to squander that. They're really scared to death that their Saturn system is going to be very expensive when it comes out. And it was very expensive when it came out. So they wanted to try to harness the goodwill that they had in America and get something out quickly that they could do before the Saturn came out in all of its glory. And so they proposed, somebody proposed, doing a 32-bit system that was mostly the Genesis still, but with a slightly more advanced architecture. as a stopgap, but they didn't want to lose whatever momentum they had gained in the United States. And they were panicking a little bit because there were new systems coming out. The Atari Jaguar had come out. The 3DO had come out. Those ended up being relegated to the dustbin of history. But from Sega's perspective, they're under attack now in the United States. The one market where things are kind of going their way. It was going their way in Europe until the whole thing fell off a cliff. We've got to make sure that we don't get eroded there. They're running scared. They're going to do this kind of stopgap console. Upon consultation with Sega of America, they modify this and decide, well, let's do this as an expansion to the Genesis instead, because it doesn't make sense to have the stopgap console that may be obsolete in a year or two anyway when the Saturn comes out. But we've got a large base of Genesis owners, so we can basically give them a Saturn on the cheap. The Saturn is going to be really expensive. We'll give them something like a Saturn with the dual SH2 processors and and this and that, but we'll make it an add-on to the Genesis. And that's the 32X. Of course, that ended up being an absolute disaster because at the time they were proposing this, they weren't sure when Saturn was coming out. But then it turns out Saturn's coming out in 1994 in Japan at the end of the year, the same year 32X is coming out, which makes it clear that Saturn's going to be coming to the United States in just another year at most. So nobody's going to buy this add-on. Yeah, why bother? Because Saturn's coming. Sega didn't mean to do that. That was kind of an accident of poor timing. Now, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a bad idea all around. But I'm just saying, it's not like they really meant to put out something that was going to be obsolete within a year. Retailers were excited for the 32X. They thought it was going to be a great thing because there were so many Genesis units out there that people would jump at the chance to essentially have a next-generation console at a cheap price. So retailers were on board. I mean, it's not like everyone and their brother was telling them this is a bad idea. Retailers wanted it. In the end, it was a bad idea, and that just made the situation even worse (laughs) for Sega. Nintendo, meanwhile, is riding the back half very well. They've gotten a little more aggressive in their advertising. They're building a little more brand. They've got Donkey Kong Country. They're regaining a position, and they, they always had Japan, and so they're doing well. And they never fully lost out in 
the United States. They no. just didn't have the majority market share. Exactly. But they still had a very respectable and powerful second position. Right. And good revenue generation. Particularly the good revenue generation. It's really a tale of how volume isn't everything. Yeah, Sega can put out all of these units, but if you're not making enough return on investment there, that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. While Nintendo is sort of like the tortoise and the hare. Yeah, the tortoise is going slower. Nintendo's going slower. It doesn't have as big a volume, but they're making great money on that so that they can spend that money when they need it. Exactly. So Nintendo doesn't have a next generation console in 1995, but the Super Nintendo business is still very good in 1995. So they do all right. Sega ends up rushing the Saturn because they're scared to death of Sony. It's not only does Sony have a system that was much more powerful for a reasonable price than anyone thought would be possible, but Sony is a big corporation that can afford to lose money to buy market share. Mm -hmm. Sega famously jumps the gun. It was a Japan decision. Kalinske was overruled on this, but Sega Japan makes the decision that they have to be first in the United States because they're afraid that Sony is going to cream them with their system. They had everything set for Sega Saturn Day in September. And then they move it up and they release it at E3, which just creates its own problems because they only gave it to select retailers and other retailers were hurt that they were left out. Plus, everyone's game development cycles were based on a September release and so very few games were ready to go. At that same E3, Sony announced that the price of the PlayStation would be only $299 when it was expected that it would have to be $399 at least. Even in terms of shocking announcements, Sony won E3 in 1995. Our system's already on sale. Well, our system's only going to sell for two ninety nine. <laughs> so if I recall a story from previously when you told me this is Sega comes out, it's got the Saturn, it's go, talking all this big stuff, and it's going to be $3.99. It's going to be $3.99. Great. Fantastic. Sony comes out, has his cards, looks at it, tosses it off to the side and goes, $2.99. <laughs> yeah, he didn't toss it off to the side, but yeah, the head of Sony ImageSoft Olaf Olafsson was giving a speech, and then in the middle of it, he said, and I'd briefly like to bring up the president of Sega Computer Entertainment of America, Mr. Steve Race, to tell you about the pricing of the system. And Steve Race brings up this big sheaf of papers like he's going to give a big speech, sets them down, two ninety nine, picks them up and walks off. And then Olaf continues his speech. Yeah, that's quite the presentation there. It ended up costing them all their jobs, but that's a story for a Sony-based episode. <laughs> Add it to the list. Yes. You know, Kalinske feels more and more disillusioned, and he finally does leave in 1996, you know, bringing an end to that era. The Saturn never really picks up in the United States. They try a last-ditch effort with Dreamcast, which we won't get into today, and then ultimately exit hardware development. But in assessing the Sega-Nintendo war, if we were going to take something away from this, and we kind of already mentioned this, but the main thing to take away from this is building market share is great. But if you don't have the financial foundations to absorb the hits you're going to take while building market share, you're not going to make it long term. And Kalinske was a brilliant builder of market share and Al Nilsson and all of those guys. They didn't have the financial base. And as Sega started hurting more and as more middle management came in underneath Nakayama that was like, hey, wait a minute, I'm not sure we can keep doing this. It created a situation where Kalinsky was stripped of a lot of power, but not because Japan was jealous, not because Japan was misunderstanding all the great things he was doing. It was just they didn't have the money. 
Nintendo, meanwhile, they lost some market share. They took some hits. Their profit went down, but they stayed the course and they adjusted a little. They made their marketing a little more aggressive. But even when they made their marketing more aggressive, at the end of the day, it was still about the games. It was still about things like Donkey Kong Country, which sold so many units. And so that's how Nintendo could stay on top and be ready to go in the fight against Sony. And obviously that fight didn't go as well as Nintendo might have hoped. But when you look at Nintendo and Sega versus Sony, Nintendo had a fighting chance and went toe-to-toe with them for a while. Even when they lost out, were still a perfectly profitable company because they had the handhelds and they had Pokemon and they had all this other stuff. Whereas Sega was rendered completely irrelevant compared to the PlayStation and the N64 and began their slow, not death spiral, because they're still around, even though they're merged with another company, but their their slow death spiral of their console business. Whereas Nintendo, because they had a stronger base and knew not to panic, just kept going. And even when they would have an occasional failure like the GameCube or the Wii U, they keep moving forward, keep doing their own thing, and ultimately have another success. That's kind of the difference between Sega and Nintendo and and all of this crazy fighting they did. All right. That wraps up episode three of Sega versus Nintendo. And we did it in three. We did it in three. We're done. Yay. (laughs) I guess that leaves. What do we cover next time? Well, as some of our listeners probably know, we did live stream the creation of this epic three-part whatever. (laughs) Hi, live people. We threw it out to chat and asked them what sounded like some good ideas, and, and we got some excellent ideas back. But I think the one we'll probably hone in on for next time is, uh, let's take a closer look at Broderbund. Uh, we've taken a look at aspects of it already, particularly when we did Carmen San Diego. There is a little more of that story to tell, and that's something that is computer game history and takes us far, far away from consoles, which we're never going to speak of again, at least until the next time we decide to speak about them. The story of that band of brothers, Broderbund, uh, will be next, I think. Alrighty, we will cover Broderbund next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Alex's forthcoming book will be published by CRC Press. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License.